This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Last Sunday we heard our Lord talking with the disciples about their resources, how we are all stewards of everything God has given to us and that we should not be foolish with those resources, but we should be prudent, we should be creative, in fact, we should be shrewd so that we can maximize every opportunity to be a conduit of God's love and grace with our resources. Well, the Pharisees were standing by listening to all of this, and so we pick up where we left off last week, Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Shall we pray? Father, we stand amazed again at your grace and goodness, your faithfulness to us. We don't deserve anything that you have showered upon us, for we are wayward creatures. We are born in sin, as the psalmist reminds us. We are in need, desperate need, of your kindness and grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. But Father, we rejoice this morning that You are a God of compassion, and you've made it possible through giving your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior and our Redeemer. You've made it possible for us to be restored. We can lift our heads high. How we thank you for that wonderful standing. But Lord, how easy it is for us to forget that you still have expectations upon our lives. The law is still in force. The Ten Commandments are still to be obeyed. Your grace does not erase the need and the expectation that we step up to the plate and by your grace and the indwelling Holy Spirit live lives that are worthy. So, Father, challenge us this morning to that end. Father, before us are wonderful opportunities in our church. We, we not only worship, but we also learn We want to be motivated. We want to be instructed. So we thank you for the new members class. We thank you for the leadership class that's uh, that's starting this week. We thank you for the opportunity as as the, the women have their luncheon and learn more about what is going to happen in this in this coming season. And Father, Lord, for the missions night, we thank you for our long, long relationship with the International Needs Network. And there, the support that they give to national 
indigenous pastors and leaders and evangelists in their own countries to be ambassadors for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to hearing from some of them. And, of course, we, we're just looking forward to hearing from Miriam as she comes our way. So, Father, touch the hearts of, of uh, your people, that they would be enrolled and engaged in all of these activities and that we would simply show up and be at the right place at the right time so that we would learn together. We continue to ask your blessing upon our church as we wind down this year. We thank you for your faithfulness as God's people have given so generously to the ministries, the ongoing outreaches of our church. And we simply pray that we would end well, that this would be another wonderful example of your goodness and faithfulness to us as we anticipate our giving as the year comes to a conclusion. And Father, as Pastor Carr comes to share the word, may our hearts be ready. May your Holy Spirit come to this place. May your Holy Spirit once again infill us and instruct us and call us to be the people that you have designed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, First Pres. I've often heard it said that an individual will ridicule what he doesn't understand. An individual will ridicule what he doesn't understand. And I think that's exactly what takes place in our text this morning. As you look at verse 14, we begin the text. It's actually uh, a continuing onflowing of Jesus' teaching. And as Jesus has been teaching for some time, the Pharisees have been present. And then we're told that after hearing all these things, they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. What things had they heard? There was the parables, the parables that Jesus told. There was the parables of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the lost sheep. And there was the parable of the dishonest manager, the shrewdness. But I think what caught their attention more than any of that is what we find in verse 13 where Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. The reason I say this is because Luke tells us it's what got their attention. If we look at our beginning verse, verse 14, it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Luke's giving us an inside scoop to the reaction that takes place by these Pharisees. And the reaction they have is one of ridicule. We don't know exactly what they said or how they ridiculed Jesus, but we know that they did, in fact, reject Jesus. They rejected not only Jesus, they rejected Jesus' message. The problem for the Pharisee was they viewed themselves too high. They thought of themselves as being too good, too holy, when the reality is that Jesus has been pointing out all through his ministry, they're a bunch of rotten sinners. And yet they rejected him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. But really what they were rejecting, understand this church, is that they were rejecting the very law of God. They were rejecting the very word of God. 
They were rejecting the very thing that God wanted them to know of themselves and of him. See, God's law is a mirror. God's law shows us our sinfulness. It shows us by putting the standard of perfection before us. Not the perfection of when we look at another individual, but when we look at the very character of God. And so the Pharisees missed this message. They had been interpreting all along the law to suit them. They've ignored the prophets regarding the need of a, pro- of a savior. They saw themselves as their own saviors. What's ironic about this is the Pharisees were the religious people of the day. They were the ones who studied the word of God more than anyone else. And yet they misunderstood the law. They misunderstood the prophets. In fact, they elevated themselves in their legalism, thinking that they could fulfill the law themselves, and thereby they lowered the law of God. By elevating themselves, they lowered God's word. Friends, this is a good warning to all of us who've grown up in the church. It's a good warning to say that because we've had access to the word of God, because we've studied the word of God, are we sure that we have heard the word of God? Have we truly listened to the Bible and what it has proclaimed, what it has called us to? For none of us would want to be lumped in with the Pharisees. As Jesus continues now in reaction to this ridicule, we read in verse 15, he says this, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Friends, these are heavy words. They're heavy words for a a cold morning when we've come to church to, to be encouraged and strengthened. And yet we realize that Jesus has to deal with the sin of men. Jesus has to have hard conversations. Jesus has to look us in the eye and say to us things that we maybe don't want to hear. That's exactly what he had to do to the Pharisees. He had to say to the Pharisees, you justify yourselves. You do what is right in your own eyes. You, You measure up all of your deeds and you think that you are holy. Yet the way you interpret the law is an abomination. It's an abomination to God. God does not see you as holy, is what Jesus is saying. God sees you as sinners. See, the bottom line for what Jesus was saying here is simply this. What we do with the law of God matters. Church, we live in a day and age where many claim to be Christians. Many claim the name of Christ. but the reality is they reject much of what he had to say. Therefore, Jesus is mocked. Jesus is ridiculed. Jesus is rejected. Jesus' words to us here is heard loud and clear that we must never justify ourselves before men. Why? Because God knows our hearts. God knows our secret thoughts. God knows our actions done in darkness. 
God knows who we really are. No man can justify himself. The bottom line is, what the word of God says should matter to each of us. Friends, for those of us who seek to be faithful, for those of us who seek to obey the word of God, we can expect to be rejected, to be ridiculed as our Savior was. But we must remember this, that no matter what others say, what's most important is what God thinks. That's really the message of Jesus' heart here. Don't worry about the noise of the world. Worry about what God has said. The religious people of the day had missed this. The question is, do we? Do we truly believe God's word even when it's not convenient? Do we truly believe God's word even when it's not comfortable? Because it begins to press in. That's really the heartbeat of what Jesus is asking, or should I say, stating to these Pharisees. Jesus continues in verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. This is a hard statement because in some respects, it seems that Jesus is pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament. Yet upon further evaluation, we realize that's not what Jesus is doing at all. What Jesus is actually doing is helping us see how the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. How the Old Testament points forward to the promises and the realities of the New Testament. See, Jesus is moving the conversation to an important point in history, the point of redemption. Jesus enters that point of history by talking about a person named John, John the Baptist he's referring to. John the Baptist, we understand, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. In many ways, John the Baptist was an end of an era. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Truly I say among you, There is none born of a woman that has risen to greater, to be greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What an amazing statement. That there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. He was the greatest. The things he did, the the boldness he had, the, the way in which he truly believed the word of God and was willing to speak the truth, even when it wasn't convenient, even when it wasn't comfortable, as great as John the Baptist was, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The emphasis is on the greatness of the kingdom of heaven, the joy of being in the kingdom of heaven, the blessedness of being accounted as one who belongs to the kingdom of God. See, the text stresses the importance of what is to come. Or should I say, who is to come? The text is stressing the promised Messiah, Christ himself, who John was to prepare the way for. If we jump to the New Testament, we hear it said a little bit different than the way Jesus says in our text. But the Apostle Paul says it very clearly in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, Notice that phrase, fullness. When time was most pregnant, when time was most ready to give birth, 
What happened? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. For what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, that we might be rightful heirs of the kingdom, that all that the prophets and all that the, the, the law had foretold and, and explained, it pushed us to see our need of the one who would come. And in the New Testament, he had come. The day was coming. In fact, the day was now when the new covenant had come. That what was prophesied by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 of the new hearts and the new covenant had really become a reality. The new era had arrived. No longer would God talk through shadows and types, but now God talked through his promised one, through his own son, and would be displayed in his son's work. Friends, understand this. This is exactly the moment of time in which the Pharisees were living when the promised one had arrived. They were now confronted to come to that truth of who Jesus was and how Jesus was necessary for the fulfillment of the law. For apart from him, they could not be justified. And yet, how do they respond? They ridicule, they mock, they scorn Jesus. The kingdom had arrived. It had been inaugurated in the person and work of Jesus. The kingdom was now being preached. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus begins his ministry by saying this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But how did the Pharisees respond? They mocked, they ridiculed, they rejected. But Jesus says some interesting words about how one enters this kingdom. And note the ending of verse 16. He says, and everyone forces his way into it. Everyone forces his way into it. Jesus is stressing the reaction one has to the good news the good news of his coming, the good news of his being present, the good news of the forgiveness of sins and the fact that we're justified by his work. What is this reaction? Well, let me give you an example biblically. Zacchaeus. What was Zacchaeus' reaction to Jesus? He ran to him, he sought him, he climbed a tree just to catch a glimpse of him. Quickly, Zacchaeus owned his own sin. And Zacchaeus even sought to pay back all those he had ever wronged. He forced his way in. He he strove to enter the kingdom. Let me get rid of anything that would hinder me, he says. Let me only cling to Jesus. What a change. Zacchaeus wasn't looking at himself and his own righteousness as a way into the kingdom. You say, of course not. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. That's why he had to pay back what he owed. That's why he needed to apologize for his sin. But we're Pharisees. We're religious folks. We're justified by our deeds. And Jesus says, no. For anyone who would enter the kingdom needs to force his way in. Anyone who would come into the kingdom needs to strive 
Now understand this, that what happens in the new covenant is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is about the changing of the heart. We said that in our prayer of confession this morning. We saw that the blessing of assurance comes with a changed heart. Jeremiah 31 says the same thing as Ezekiel 36, that the blessing of the new covenant is one whose heart's changed. Now we desire to repent. We truly believe. We want to be near Jesus. We want to own up for our sin. We want to fix the wrongs that have been done. This challenge that Jesus offers is a correcting of our understanding of the law. The Old Testament saints weren't saved by what they did. They were saved the same way as the New Testament saints. Everyone was saved by Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints were to look for the coming of the Messiah. But those, when Jesus came, were to identify him as Jesus of Nazareth. Church, I ask you this morning, have you identified Jesus? Have you truly understood who Jesus is regarding the gospel and why it's so important that he has come for you? May I say it simply, do you truly love Jesus and do you truly hate sin? For that's what it looks like when one strives to enter the kingdom. Jesus is their chief joy. He is the great pearl of price. He is, the, he is the one in which they found a great treasure and would sell everything else for. Jesus is our chief joy. Is that how you feel about Christ this morning? And how do you feel about your sin? Not just the public sins that everyone knows about, but the private sins. Do you hate them? Do you despise them? Do you desire for them to go away? That's the striving that Jesus refers to in the idea of forcing his way into the kingdom. And this only comes by the gift of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And this is what Jesus is striving and pointing to and correcting regarding the Pharisees, who again in verse 15 justified themselves. Constantly justifying themselves. But in doing that, they lowered the word of God and made themselves very large. But God's reminding us, God knows our hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Then we come to verse 17. Where Jesus continues yet further down this road, Jesus says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This is the truth of why the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints had to be saved the same way. The law exposes our sin. It's perpetually there. It's eternally there. It's actually saying it would be easier for God's creation to pass away than for even a dot of his word to ever become void. So no one could ever be saved by the law. The law is too perfect, too holy. It's that perfect mirror in which we see our ever-setting sin. 
this dot refers to the smallest part of any Hebrew letter. Not even the smallest part of a Hebrew letter will fall away void. The law comes from an eternal God and therefore will not pass away. There is no loosening. There is no weakening of the law. No one can ever be saved by keeping the law. No, the law is a schoolmaster which drives us to our need of Christ according to Galatians chapter 3. And Jesus explained this earlier in his ministry. Back in Matthew chapter 5, we read this. Do you not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an oyata, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Friends, the point is simple. We could never be saved by the law. We never could keep it it's an entire, in its entirety. We must be saved by the works of another. And who is that, you ask? Jesus Christ. Jesus' works of active and passive obedience. That sounds so foreign to our ears. What do we mean by active and passive obedience? The very deeds he's done since he became man on this earth, when he took on human flesh, he obeyed the law perfectly when no one else could. And yet he also went to the cross willingly, laying down his life for his sheep. His active and his passive obedience is what saves us. Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice, which therefore means he actively had to obey all that was required, and he did that. And yet Jesus also must be willingly to lay down his life for sinners, and he did that. Friends, there is only way, and it is Jesus. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law for sinners. The law never changes, but our relationship to the law, that does change, thanks to Christ. We who were once foreigners and aliens, we who were far off, we who ignored the law are now made holy as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we see our sin and we hate it and we run to Jesus and his perfection. So church, I ask you, do you see your sin? Do you hate your sin? Are you personally running to Jesus? That's what Jesus is preaching here. That was the point of Jesus' ministry. That is what Jesus was calling for. And yet, see, Jesus knew the Pharisees did not hear him. How sad it is that there would be those who hear the clear preaching of God's word and yet reject it. And so Jesus begins to push in yet further. In verse 18, we come to a very difficult and and uncomfortable passage. Especially when you look at the state of marriage today. Look at verse 18, it says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus seems to be on the attack here. Jesus seems to be saying, let me correct your wrong view of the law. Remember, friends, that Jesus is speaking specifically to the Pharisees of his day. The Pharisees viewed themselves as righteous and holy and good people. And yet Jesus goes after their use of the law 
specifically regarding divorce. And what does he say? He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. What does Jesus mean? What is Jesus after? Well, I think it goes back to that verse 15, those who were justifying themselves before men. He's saying, God knows your heart. See, to understand that time, the time of Jesus, we need to understand that in that period of time, people took too light a view towards divorce. The Pharisees were great arguers of this. In fact, if you study the life of Christ, one of the things he argues with them most about is divorce. It may be astounding as we think about it, but it's true. Again and again, Jesus is confronted with the issue of divorce from the religious folks, from the Pharisees. And why? It comes down to their view of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. You say, well, what does that say? Let me read it. If she finds no favor in your eyes because of some indecency, he writes her a certificate of divorce. The question hinders around one phrase, some indecency. Some indecency. Many scholars have looked at this and wrestled with what exactly the Pharisees understood this to mean. And yet what we see is that even for the slightest infraction, a burnt dinner, as one Pharisee wrote, or simply to have found someone prettier, another would describe. These were valid reasons for divorce. Now, we may say maybe it was the influence of the Roman culture, but more correctly, I believe Jesus describes that the real issue was the hardness of men's hearts. For anyone who would divorce his wife for a burnt dinner or a simply finding a prettier woman exposes the hardness of their heart. We look at the story of King Herod. What did he do? He took his brother's wife. And the truth of the matter is, in his day and age, he thought nothing of it. And no one called him out. No one, that is, except one, John the Baptist, who spoke in such a way as to offend this king and his queen. And yet now we see Jesus making it abundantly clear that the law of God is not to be taken lightly by any. For when Jesus is asked again about divorce, he quotes from Genesis 2. And this is what he says in Mark 10. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And then hear the words of Jesus here. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Friends, marriage is a covenant between two people before God and none of us should ever take it lightly. Vows are serious. The book of Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. And yet Jesus explains, divorce exists because of the hardness of your hearts. For by the hardness of men's hearts, people sin. 
But friends, let me be clear. People are also sinned against. And that's why the Bible says divorce is permitted for two reasons. The case of sexual morality or the act of abandonment, according to 1 Corinthians 7. Our own confession states these as valid reasons. Yet for the believer, the one who takes God's word serious, divorce should never be taken lightly. And yet that's exactly what we saw of the religious folk of Jesus' day. They lowered the law and made themselves large. And in it, we clearly see that Jesus says, this is unacceptable. Friends, we all have experienced the fracturing of families. We all have experienced the loss of friendships. Divorce hurts. Let's face it, divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. God's law regarding marriage is clear. It must be taken serious. Therefore, we must be careful that we don't fall into either extreme. For we should never take marriage lightly and view divorce as just a friendly option. Nor should we ever view divorce as the unforgivable sin. Jesus is exposing the problem the real problem of men's hearts, the problem of sin. Friends, as we sin, we sin against others. And let's be true, others sin against us. That's why we all need a savior, amen? That's why we all need a savior. For the law and the prophets will never be wiped away. They remain forever. But the good news is Jesus has come and Jesus has brought hope for the hopeless. Friends, if ye have sinned, there is forgiveness in Christ. If we are in Christ and we face temptation, we have resurrection power, the resurrection power of Jesus that is given to us by the Holy Spirit to resist temptation. May we not be like the Pharisees who justify themselves. May we be like those who are like Zacchaeus, running to Jesus, admitting our sin and turning from it. May we live with hearts of gratitude because Christ has come. Friends, this morning we've seen Jesus was ridiculed by the Pharisees for his view of the law. Yet Jesus exposes their self-justifying view. He exposes their wrong view of making the law little and themselves large. Jesus makes it clear that the law of God is a mirror and that mirror never goes away. Every time we look in the word, we see who we are. But the good news is we also see who Jesus is and why he's come. He is our savior, not we ourselves. May we cling to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful for the hope that Christ provides in a broken world. God, may we cling to him as our source of joy. For Lord, we know that as we look at your word, your word is perfect and we are not. So Lord, may we find our hope in the one who can provide it our Savior, Redeemer, and friend. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.